Welcome to the EIN Global Podcast, the place where we speak to experts from across education, academia, and industry, so we can contribute to the professional conversations happening in our community now. The discussions we have and insights shared by guests help develop our own thinking and work, and hopefully spark further dialogue for other educators too, as they reflect on their practice and the students they work with. In today's episode, we're joined by Dr. James Welsh. Dr. Welsh is the director of the Florida Center for Instructional Technology, FCIT, where he provides professional learning, digital content, and technology integration evaluation services to schools and districts worldwide. Dr. Welsh teaches classroom technology integration to students at the University of South Florida and professional development courses to educators through USF's I Teach Professional Learning. Dr. Welsh is the project leader for the Technology Integration Matrix Evaluation Tools and has worked with many districts and states on education technology initiatives. He directs the Tampa Theatre Film Camp, a digital filmmaking summer camp, and his research interests span media literacies, evaluation of technology integration in K-20 settings, student engagement in the creation and critical evaluation of multimedia texts, and the evaluation of multimodal texts in online settings. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, starting with James's journey into education and his role at the FCIT, his belief in the absolute importance of classroom teachers, the background of how TIM or the Technology Integration Matrix came to be and what it tries to do, the importance of scaffolding student decisions with technology, and the fact that technology itself is not an academic intervention. Fundamentally, it's about how it's used. We also touch on his thoughts about what's changed and what's not in the use of technology in the last 20 years, and some of his own thoughts about how we should go about measuring the impact of technology in education. So lots to chew on here. Let's get into it now. Dr. James Welsh, welcome to the EIM Global Podcast. Great to have you with us. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. We've been looking forward to this conversation uh, for, for a little while, actually, especially because a lot of the work EIM have been doing has obviously involved the technology integration matrix, and we'll, we'll get into some conversation about that today and the, and the technology uses and perceptions survey as well. So we know it's something that's had a, an impact on, on our schools already in the relatively short time we've been doing that. So looking forward to unpacking some of that with you and, and perhaps some other topics as well. But um, where, are you, uh, where are you speaking to us from today, James? I am uh, at my home in Tampa, Florida. So it must be getting into the evening there for you, I suppose. It is. It is. Yeah, we're we're well into the evening now. So James, you are, and correct me if I get this wrong, but you are director of the Florida Center for Instructional Technology, University of South Florida. And, I, and I'd love to dig into exactly what the director of the Florida Center for Instructional Technology does, uh, how you got <laughs> to take that role, you know, what the FCIT aims to actually do and achieve. So what was your journey like to that role? Sure. Um, well, it's, before I uh, came to education, I had a, a, a very different path. Um, I worked at a TV station. I worked in business. I did uh, event planning, um, all kinds of different things before I uh, realized what, uh, what my calling was really in education. You know, it's one of those things where I, I did a lot of things that were fun and interesting and exciting um, that I enjoyed quite a bit. But I reached a point where I, a lot of people come to this point, right? Where you, where you go, well, what's my life about? Like, what's the bigger purpose for what I'm doing? And the things that I experienced in my life that were always the most meaningful for me were projects that involved working with kids. 
um, and working with education. And that's re- when I realized that that's where I wanted to be. And that's what I wanted to be doing. That was the most valuable thing that I could do with my life. And so that was it. Um, I, I pretty quickly, you know, turned the car and, uh, um, went into education. I became a, an elementary uh, a teacher, a primary grades teacher. And um, throughout the, the time that I was transitioning into education, um, actually very early on in that experience, I became involved with the Florida Center for Instructional Technology, which is based at the University of South Florida. Um, and I started doing side projects with them as an undergraduate. I started doing some video work. Um, you know, I kind of, I gravitated toward the, the center there because I had an interest in technology. I've always sort of been uh, the techie in whatever office I was working in. And so um, I, I found a real family of educators at FCIT and, and a home there. And so while I left the university and uh, went to work in the elementary classroom and uh, I love teaching, I love uh, working directly with kids, I always kept one foot in FCIT. Um, I worked with them on educator professional development. I did teacher trainings. I did. I helped develop a curriculum and uh, worked on a lot of different um, education projects at FCIT over the years. And when a position became available there that would allow me to um, work on a master's degree, which is something that I'd always been interested in. Uh, the director of FCIT at the time said, you know, I want you to do this job. I want you to come back here and work on this full time while you're getting your master's and then return to the classroom uh, because it was a really difficult decision. I loved being in the classroom and I didn't want to leave. And he knew that. And so the arguments that he made were all sort of aligned to let's get you back in the classroom as soon as possible. Um, but as I started down the path of getting my master's, I I really got hooked into the university setting and, and educational research and learning things that could be then applied back to the classroom, things that could uh, help teachers, support teachers, support student learning. Was this his plan all along, perhaps, to <laughs> you'd, uh, you'd take that? It might have been, you know, and he he always told me, you know, years after that, he told me he felt incredibly guilty about recruiting me from the classroom. Um, and I've always been careful. Like I, FCIT, um, we are populated by uh, by teachers, um, uh, by and large. Most of the people that work at FCIT, and, and it's true over the years, have had classroom teaching experience. And I'm always careful as director when I am talking to somebody who is currently a classroom teacher, I don't want to steal them from the classroom. We need wonderful, bright, talented, engaging people right there in that seat. There's no job that's more important than than a classroom teacher. And so I never want to be the cause of somebody leaving the classroom. But if somebody is ready for the next step in their journey and they're ready to move on from, from the classroom and and do and contribute in other ways, I'd love to find those people and bring them uh, bring them on on the team at FCIT. So perhaps that's a good moment then to ask what exactly does FCIT aim to do? What does it set out to do? It's interesting. Our mission changes with the needs of uh, the education community and with educational technology. Um, FCIT was founded in the early 80s. And at the time it was founded, um, the Florida legislature created technology centers at all of the state universities. Um, There was a different technology center at each state university. Each one had a different focus. Um, For 
for University of South Florida, it was instructional computing. Um, for, for, as an example, um, Florida State University, um, their focus was interactive media. Um, after the state funding uh, uh, went away, um, you know, it lasted for a period of years, but eventually that was no longer part of the state budget. Most of those centers uh, immediately also went away. The early leadership at FCIT diversified the center to make sure that we were addressing needs in a lot of different ways, partnering with school districts, very outward focused. And, and over the years, that's been a consistent uh, theme for FCIT. Um, to work with people outside of the university, in schools, uh, across the state, across the country, around the world. And, and so that outward focus has kept us funded from a variety of different sources. Um, we do uh, grant work. We do uh, contract work for companies. Um, we partner with uh, other universities. Um, we partner with school districts and, and schools, systems of schools, things like that. Um, in all the work that we do. We're constantly looking at what contribution we can make in improving uh, how technology is used in classrooms um, to improve student learning. Um, we're very much centered on that, on that setting, that in, instructional setting in classrooms and, and sort of how we can improve the lives of K-12 students. Everything we do is centered around uh, K-12 education. A lot of that has to do with professional development for educators. Um, and my first experiences with FCIT were in the early 2000s. And, you know, thinking about like that environment, the, the early to mid 2000s, um, you know, let's say 2003 through maybe even through the end of the end of that decade, just a period of uh, amazing innovation and uh, investment in educational technology in Florida schools in particular. Um, it, it was a, a confluence of different uh, different things, but you had people at all of the universities, at the school districts, and at the State Department of Education working together uh, to create some really innovative structures uh, for professional development and for measurement. And the TIM grows out of that environment. Uh, a lot of the people that were involved in that in that movement uh, in the early 2000s are the people who contributed uh, to the creation of uh, the TIM. And by TIM, I mean the Technology Integration Matrix, uh, TIM for short. Well, I was just about to, to go on and, uh, and ask you about exactly that, but you've, you've segued beautifully. So yes, TIM, the Technology Integration Matrix, be, be good perhaps for, for listeners that aren't familiar with, with the TIM, just to get a, a brief overview of, of what that is. And, and as you said, how it really came about, I know you've just alluded to a little bit of that, but it'd be great to understand that background as well. Sure. Um, it's a, a framework for describing uh, technology integration in the classroom. That's the, in its simplest form. Um, it's a way that you can describe what's happening uh, in a classroom from the perspective of, you know, sort of technology integration. The TIM is a model that is focused on and concerned with pedagogy. Um, so some other models, there, there are multiple models for, you know, how you answer the question, how, how is technology being uh, integrated in the classroom? Some of those models focus on different aspects. Um, the TIM focuses on pedagogy. Um, so with the TIM, we're not so concerned with which technologies are being used. Um, we're concerned with how those technologies are being used. And it's a descriptive framework in that we're not saying that uh, any of the uses that we're describing are are necessarily good or bad, 
but that they have different uh, pedagogical dimensions to them and that there are different purposes and different outcomes you can expect. So that when you're integrating technology, it's, it's always better to be deliberate, intentional, informed about the way you're using technology in the classroom. Um, it's not always obvious. And so, you know, if you go by the instruction manual that comes with the hardware or the software, um, you're not necessarily going to integrate it in a way that is going to benefit you or your students uh, to, to the greatest degree. And so the TIM is a framework for helping understand all of the different pedagogical choices that a teacher can make in, in crafting a lesson and that school leaders can think about as far as creating those learning environments and supporting those teachers. I haven't actually said what it is, though, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah, I mean, that's probably a good thing to do. I mean, just to give us a little bit of a sense of of the the arms of that matrix, if you like, and, uh, and the characteristics that the Tim identifies. Yeah, it's, as the name implies, a matrix. Um, it has uh, five levels uh, that, that we arrange uh, across the top. Um, and it has five characteristics that we arrange down the side. Um, and the matrix is the intersection of those levels and those characteristics. The levels are about a spectrum of different pedagogical choices that a teacher can make. Um, from at, at one end, um, very uh, teacher-centered and teacher-driven, um, where the teacher is deciding which technology tools to use and how to use them in the classroom, uh, when and why to use them, things like that, to the other end of the spectrum that is very student-centered, where the students are empowered and supported in making uh, choices about which technologies, how to integrate them, when to integrate them. Um, they have meaningful access to technology tools and can integrate them in many different ways. Um, the characteristics are um, describing different lenses through which we can view technology integration. The characteristics are active, collaborative, constructive, authentic, and goal-directed. Um, and those are looking at, from educational research, Things that we know are important in teaching and learning, things that are fundamental uh, to vibrant uh, education community. And they're not an exhaustive list of all of the things that you might want to look at in technology integration, but they're five central things um, that you'll find in, in most learning environments in most classrooms. Um, and then those five levels contrasted with those five characteristics give you many different entry points, depending on what your goal is, whether you're trying to describe something, whether you're uh, a teacher thinking about a professional development uh, journey, um, or a school planning resources or change across a community. You mentioned other frameworks that listeners may be familiar with. And I'm thinking about things like SAMA and TPAC, I suppose. And, and one of the conversations that, that I've certainly come across with the SAMA framework is, is this question of whether or not, you know, it's always the aim to be moving you know, along or up the SAMA framework. When you think about the technology integration matrix, do you think about the, the, the goal over time to be moving the learning experiences across from left to right towards the more you know, transformative level, uh, to, to use the word that the, the Tim matrix uses, or is it not about that? Is that the wrong way to think about it? So I'll just mention quickly that you can see the matrix at um, fcit.usf.edu slash matrix. And we'll link to it in the show notes as well, James. Yeah, so that you can get a visual of, of what, we're, what we're talking about, sort of the left to right uh, and, and up and down. Um, but with the matrix, uh, no. It's again, you know, when we're saying sort of entry level and, and student-centered, it's not that those lessons are, are bad. 
um, or that they're not effective. Um, you know, I've, I've observed thousands of lessons and some of those lessons have been really good entry-level lessons uh, in terms of the matrix. In the matrix, in the parlance of the matrix, if the teacher is the only one using technology in the lesson, um, it's an entry-level lesson. It doesn't mean that that teacher isn't capable of doing other things. It's that that teacher has made a decision that the best, you know, the best way to meet the needs of the students at that moment, the best way to engage the curriculum at that moment is with an entry-level lesson. And, and that entry-level lesson means the teacher is the only one using technology, the teacher is using it to present, and that can be really engaging, that can be really effective. That by no means should be the only way that, that a teacher is integrating technology. Sort of you, 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 you want to deploy that when it's most effective, when it's needed, but you also want lessons where uh, students are making choices, students are making guided, supported choices, eventually students are more independent. And I think, you know, sort of one of the fundamental reasons for that is that the more complex uh, interactions become in, in our world, the more difficult it is to predict and, the, and, you know, the speed of technological change. We can't predict what our students are going to be doing after K-12. We don't know what their lives are going to be like. We don't know what careers they're going to go into. Um, uh, we don't know what their experiences post-K-12 will look like. But we do know that whatever they do um, post-K-12 will involve not just one technology, but multiple technologies. Um, students will have to engage with multiple technologies in whatever career, whatever learning experience, if they go on to university or some other kind of career training, um, or um, if they go directly into the workforce. And so if you think about the journey of, of a student who's in K-12, you think about the journey of their life, um, it's going to be vital, you know, and not just in work, but in citizenship. It's going to be vital for them to engage with effectively multiple technology tools. But we also know that technology changes very quickly um, and that the tools that are going to be important to those students 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now are not the tools that we're looking at today. Um, and they may be related, but even if they're the same so piece of software, the same kind of hardware, um, they're, they will change significantly in that amount of time. And so it's not necessarily important that students master a certain defined list. If, you know, if we can, if we could sit down and define what are the most important, 10 most important technologies today, and then drill to make sure every student who's in K-12 right now masters those 10 technologies, if that's all we're doing, we failed those students because they're definitely going to encounter novel technologies uh, in their lives after K-12. They have to have some framework for dealing with that, for thinking about it, for, for understanding how to um, how to get the most out of those technologies in their own lives, to enrich their own lives, um, and to, to enrich the work that they're going to do. And so the best way to do that is to, to scaffold them into making good decisions about how to integrate technology um, and how to think about, you know, what are the affordances and limitations of a novel tool that they encounter. And, and how can they take advantage of that? How can they um, understand it? and approach it uh, and and perhaps marry it with other technologies that they encounter. And so is the point that you're making there that if you think about the sort of left to right across the, the matrix itself, while there may be you know, moments where it's appropriate to have a very teacher-centered use of technology, actually those other 
squares, I suppose, on the matrix, those intersections on the matrix are important to provide opportunities for students to experience as well. Because if you don't give them the space to actually make those choices, to think about, you know, and deliberate over when is the, an appropriate use of a technology, what kind of technology, when they encounter those novel technologies, they just haven't had the opportunity or the background to start to develop some some mental model, I suppose, in terms of how to actually approach those kinds of decisions that they're then faced with. Is is that right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, that mental model is so important, and and sort of modeling those decisions. If the teacher is, you know, presenting an environment that is rich in many different technologies, um, you know, and especially if different teachers are are focusing on different technologies, I think that's a healthy environment. I think that you know, a diversity of different approaches to technology in schools is is also healthy for that reason to allow students to encounter different uh, different approaches to technology. But if they're if if the if they're scaffolded into those decisions in the K twelve environment, that can uh, allow them to be more comfortable in applying those things uh, after after K twelve. And I think that you could make an effective argument, you know, in saying that, well, kids are a lot more comfortable with technology than adults and uh, that kids don't have any problem approaching a new technology and, and, and using it and they're adopting it in their daily lives. However, I would point out that there's a difference between the, the way you use technology for, for play or, or let's say this, the way a software a uh, programmer might intend for you to use that technology is not necessarily the way that is going to help you meet your goals. Um, and so it's important to be able to unpack those things and make decisions for yourself, make informed decisions for yourself. There's a difference between, you know, if you look at your students and say, oh, my students know everything about technology and I know so little, I don't have anything to, to bring to the table in those conversations. That's absolutely wrong. Um, as As classroom teachers, uh, a classroom teacher understands uh, learning theory and curriculum design and uh, child development and understands uh, how, how children develop concepts and where misconceptions can come in and how to address those. Um, and so all of that sort of knowledge about learning and how to learn, those are things that kids haven't uh, uh, developed necessarily. And something that, you know, in looking at technology and figuring out how does this technology help me reach my goals? How can I learn from this technology? We'll learn with this technology. Um, that's something that teachers can impart in a, in a rich classroom environment that uh, where technology is integrated in, in uh, diverse ways. I couldn't agree more. And it's one reason why one of the conversations we're, we're having a lot at the moment across our own schools and group is, is this, this notion of co, co-design, co, co-agency, you know, students being part of the conversation of how we want to go about achieving a certain goal um, because yes they're bringing certain experiences and a knowledge and, and in some cases knowledge of technology for example that, that the teachers themselves may not have or may not have thought about using a particular piece of technology in that way but as you quite rightly point out that's only you know half the story so we need to give students the space to create uh, those opportunities and have conversations about how to you know, best pursue those goals, but with the scaffolding and support and expertise that that the the educator brings to that conversation. So I think that that co-design piece is is hugely important, and it might not always be appropriate to be co-designing everything. But again, it brings us back to the matrix. You know, there's, there's a time and a place, and that that's the the very deliberate design that becomes the responsibility of educators. That with the increasing amount of technology we have available to us, is 
it's probably in some ways more more challenging than it ever has been, but but also a huge range of opportunity that those technologies afford. Just perhaps thinking about that for a moment, from the perspective of a teacher, a classroom teacher, how do you advise those people to go about using the TIM or the technology integration matrix itself? What sort of tactics or strategies would you recommend? One thing that I think is helpful is to, when approaching a new technology, to think about it in terms of what the what kind of learning the technology enables. the the terms The terminology that I usually use is affordances and limitations, and looking at what kinds of activity structures that technology is good at facilitating, and what kinds of activity structures or interactions that uh, that technology works against, and. So you can think in terms of sort of how a technology changes uh, a given activity. Um, it, and if you think about, you know, as, and as an illustration of that, think about like a, um, a common classroom uh, scenario where you have a small group of students who are working on, let's say, a, a poster board, a, you know, a, a piece of poster to share what they've learned about a given topic, some kind of a jigsaw activity. Um, and in a scenario where you have, you know, essentially a piece of paper and several markers, those students can all participate in the creation of, uh, I'm, I'm in elementary school in my head, by the way. I always go to primary sure. grades in my head with examples. Uh, and it's something I have to fight against sometimes when I'm talking to a secondary uh, education audience because, uh, you know, they don't, they don't necessarily go there. But go there with me, if you will. We're in primary grades. The kids have markers. They're all making this poster together. And it's great because all of the kids are able to contribute and they're able to contribute in different ways and at different times and at different spaces. They can all work simultaneously and they can work together and they can see each other's work. So you can think about sort of some of the affordances that that allows. And now think about if you're adapting that to a technology and the technology that you have available is a laptop. And so you give each group a laptop. And some of the things that are really great about that is that it means that the work is much more shareable in a digital form. It can go further, it can last longer, it can travel distances, all kinds of things like that. Um, but one of the things that it, it limits is that one person can be working on the keyboard at a time. It's very difficult for more than one person to be using that keyboard. And so now you have one person as the scribe and everybody else's ideas have to go through that one person. Um, you've essentially changed the nature of the interaction between the students. And it, that may be good for, for, you know, based on the needs of the students, based on the, the curriculum demands, that may be a good choice, um, but it's a choice. And, and you as a teacher have to look at it and say, what are the affordances of this technology? What are the limitations? What do my students need um, from, a, from a pedagogical standpoint? Um, what's, what kinds of uh, learning structures are going to enable my students to, to learn in this case? Um, and, and what kinds of things might get in the way um, so that you can, you can decide how that technology, how best to bring it into the classroom. So I think we have a number of different resources uh, on the website that help in kind of walking through these ideas and thinking about, okay, if I look at a technology, um, we actually have an instructional design model that's uh, sort of an iterative model where you can think about the technology, think about the the pedagogical needs of your students and think about the uh, curriculum demands um, and sort of iterate through each of those steps. We have a series of questions that you ask in different ways, um, iterate through each of those steps to build 
uh, a lesson experience around uh, uh, technology integration that's grounded in um, the needs of the students and the and the curriculum demands. I think the uh, the, the way you're describing it is so important because I know others have have made similar claims here. I, I wonder what your feeling is, but it, it seems that it's quite possible that we bring technology into a learning experience, perhaps in the way you just described, uh, with a laptop. But by introducing that, we don't really actually change anything perhaps for the better pedagogically um yes there's now technology involved we've, we've ticked a sort of technology box but so what to what end so what? and perhaps actually in in some cases so what is is actually well we've made something worse as yes. a result of the introduction of that technology and so i, I wonder you know do, do you see that that risk that we have the introduction of technology and, I, and i'm thinking about i don't know something like uh you know, tra- transmission models of education. And again, there's, there's a time and a place for some of that as we started the conversation with today. But okay, just because we can put students onto an, an LMS and just because we can have a quiz at the end of some content they've read, should we? You know, does, it, does, <laughs> d- does the advantage that that technology platform afford us actually achieve something we want to achieve? And it might, might be because it might be that students are, you know, at a distance and not able to be physically in a classroom, for example, and therefore, you know, that LMS provides access uh, in a way that it otherwise might not. But do, do we achieve a valuable end if we do the same thing with students all sat side by side in a classroom in, in that case, for example? So I wonder, do, do you see that risk? Do you see examples of that? Is that something that you that keeps you up at night? <laughs> it doesn't keep me up at night, um, but um, it, it is, yes, well stated. It is, it is, technology is, is not always used in ways that improve uh, teaching and learning. Um, technology in and of itself is is not good or bad. And, and uh, you know, another way to come at the question, like technology in and of itself is not an academic intervention. So, you know, you can't say like, oh, I have a struggling reader, so I'm going to use an iPad, and now that struggling reader is going to improve their reading scores. They might, but it's not because of the iPad. It's because of what you're doing with the iPad. And so, you know, in every case, it's always most important to say, you know, what are the needs of the students? What are what are the demands of this education environment? Not um, how much can I integrate technology or or, you know, how much more can I integrate technology? Uh, The technology isn't solving anything by itself. It's it's really in how it's used. So more technology is not always better. Then you have to ask the question, well, when is it better? And how is it better? And how do I know when it is better to integrate technology or how to better integrate technology? And that's where the matrix comes in, where you say like, okay, if I, if I think about it in terms of pedagogy and, and really, you know, like the characteristics of the matrix, if you think about how the technology that you're using is making the, more, the, the lesson more active um, or allowing more or deeper collaboration um, or the technology use itself, how is that helping students relate the lesson content to their lives outside of the classroom or to a broader global context. These are ways in which technology can be incredibly powerful in transforming a classroom. You know, you talk about things like collaboration or, or authentic contexts or, um, or, or constructive learning approaches. Man, technology can do amazing things, but it doesn't do it by itself. It does it in the hands of professional educators who are are respected and well supported uh, by their educational communities 
um, it's it's about teachers making informed uh, um, deliberate decisions about how they're integrating technology into the classroom. It's not the technology that's doing the heavy lifting. It's the teacher. The technology can enable that, but yes, it can be used. Uh, it can be used in ways that also do not improve technology. I, I sometimes think of it as technology has two different superpowers. Um, one is this power to, to accelerate differentiation. Um, it allows you to do many different things at the same time um, uh, with planning in ways that wouldn't be possible without the use of a technology tool. But it also allows you to standardize sort of the complete opposite of that differentiation. It allows you to deliver exactly the same experience or present exactly the same requirements to uh, an infinitely large group of people. Um, and so, you know, given those two different, very different superpowers, it's it has to be approached carefully to say, you know, what do my students need, need needs? What are the what are the educational outcomes that I, as a professional educator, am trying to steer towards? How can technology help me do those things? There are a number of things in in there that I I'm equally excited about. I think, but one of the things that that I find particularly exciting about the the scale and reach that technology, when appropriately wielded, can provide students is just to reflect on my own, you know, uh, journey and uh, as a as a learner and then as, as an educator as well. I think, you know, when I was growing up, yeah, I, I knew how to build a website. I could do that. I knew a bit of HTML and some, some CSS and so on. And so I had the means to do that. But the reality at that point was, you know, there weren't that many sort of SaaS options for hosting and things like that. Uh, and, you know, I needed a fair bit of cash, sort some servers out. How many people were actually on the other end of that going to be able to access that site anyway? You know, whereas you think about students today and, you know, just with, with a mobile phone and, and social media, and, and that's not to dismiss any any of the challenges that social media certainly comes with, but the, the reach a student can have, you know, the, an authentic audience that they can they can find and and impact uh, in many ways is is just exponentially larger uh, and and more immediate than it ever has been. And again, you know, to to quote, what is it, Spider Man? With great power comes great responsibility, and educators certainly have to be part of that conversation. But I think that's an, an incredibly empowering thing for students to realise that some of the work they they are doing and can do is not because they're just going to pass an exam at the end of it, not just because the teacher's going to look at it and then hand it back, you know, a couple of weeks later, but actually they can really have a meaningful impact on on the world at large because of the way these technologies amplify some of the possibilities. And of course, that speaks to other things that, that you, you touched on, you know, in terms of collaboration, for example. You know, no longer are we limited to collaborate with the people that are in our immediate geographical vicinity, uh, whether that's a classroom or maybe, you know, the, the journey to and from school, as it were, that, that sort of radius. But but actually, almost instantaneously, globally now, again, potentially, we can bring in experts and um, expertise and, and content from almost anywhere to enrich a, a learning experience. And again, that, that just wouldn't be possible uh, practically, I think, without technology. So a huge number of exciting opportunities, certainly, that I see there. Um, I think... At that point, I'd just like to ask you, I mean, given given your career and the amount of time you spent working in this space and, and working with uh, with educators and schools and, and students, what has changed uh, in terms of the way technology is used? I mean, obviously, technologies themselves have changed un undoubtedly, but what's really changed um, in the way they're being used um, and perhaps what's not? Um, and maybe you, you wish had, but but hasn't. So what, what are the patterns, I suppose, that you've observed over the last... 10, 20 years in, this, in the field? I think the, the most sort of shockingly rapid change has been 
uh, over the pandemic, over the course of the pandemic, uh, the adoption of uh, different technologies. Um, when I started working on the technology integration matrix um, and, and the technology integration matrix evaluation tools, um, we immediately started talking to a lot of districts, um, a lot of school districts uh, across the United States, but then also almost immediately started talking to uh, international schools and uh, ministries of education in other countries. Um, and because of, you know, talking to people, even just across the United States, we started using uh, video conferencing software. And this was, you know, again, probably um, 2008, 2009, 2010. Um, and you see this sort of slow adoption of video conferencing as a, as a technology. And you know, exciting in the early days of seeing video conferencing in classrooms because you go, wow, you could bring in global experts from anywhere in the world to talk to your students. You can, except most classrooms didn't have sufficient bandwidth to do video conferencing or the hardware or software that would be necessary. And most teachers had no professional support in how to use those tools. And so you see, you know, this, this sort of slow adoption curve uh, creeping up over the years. And suddenly, uh, in the past two years, everyone is using, uh, everyone has used video conferencing. But like, this, this is no longer a thing. And I mean, literally, like, we've, <laughs> for years, we've, you know, I've been talking to people about the Tim primarily through video conferencing, uh, talking to groups of teachers, talking to educators, talking to school leaders, and district leaders, and, you know, and, and, you know, even researchers at universities, most people were not fluent in, in just the basic technologies of video conferencing. And also the platforms were so immature, you know, the, the inner, the user interfaces, the reliability of those networks, things like that. This is a night and day shift from, you know, we're here in 2022, late 2022. So, you know, let's say um, from let's go back to 2019, three years ago, like it, it's a night and day shift in the number of people who have exposure and fluency with those tools. Um, now, what has not changed at the same pace is how these and, you know, not just this, like the technologies changed quickly. The communities that use those technologies changed very quickly as well. You would never see, in a normal situation, you would never see the speed of adoption that's happened of, you know, video conferencing, LMSs, you know, all of these things. Incredible. And an incredible opportunity. Um, but you also see um, that, by and large, there's not enough professional development put into how do you use this in instruction? How do you use this to, to, to enrich the classroom setting, to energize your students, to engage your students in a global community? Now that you have video conferencing in your classroom, what do you do with it to really make educational change uh, in your classroom? And it's just, I think that that's, that's something that, you know, I, I really hope that we catch up with. And I think the other thing that is concerning about it is, you know, obviously the journey through COVID has been very stressful and very difficult um, for, for educators who, you know, a, a, I gotta say, like a lot of professions sort of took a pause uh, to kind of get their footing and figure things out. Educators had no pause, you know, they had students the you know okay now we're in quarantine now we're now we're all going home they still had students they still had to teach they had to dive right in um, and so I think that there's some some people have you know some serious and and well earned negative associations with things like video conferencing or LMSs um, and 
And so, you know, that's a little bit worrisome. Um, they're powerful tools that can be used in really great ways. And everybody now has at least a base level of, of understanding of how to use them. And they have access to adequate hardware and software to use them. So um, that's probably the biggest change. I'm, I think you're probably looking for something deeper than that. But <laughs> that's sort of a surface level change that I've seen very recently. But no, I, I think that's uh, that's a really important observation, not just the acceleration of that change, but the need then for, I suppose, the, the ability to wield those tools and to think about what they, they do well and, and perhaps do less well. And it's back to the earlier part of the conversation, isn't it? The matrix itself and, and things like that that can help support that, those kinds of conversations because now we can the question is you know when should we uh and, and the answer probably is is at different times and different places but not always um and one of the things i'm i'm quite interested in for example is you know now that now that we have the opportunity for for such hybrid approaches what does that mean for the structures of sort of traditional schooling as we know it and you know there's lots of talk about things things like the the industrial model of education etc cetera, etc cetera. but you know certainly things like the availability and the familiarity with, uh, you know, video conferencing technology, for example, means that there are a number of things that, that we can do practically now that just probably weren't practical five, six years ago. Um, and that's getting better all the time. So what, what I'm really hoping is that, and, and there are certainly areas where this is beginning to happen already, that those conversations begin to be had, which is not to say that some sort of hybrid approach is always the right thing to do, or that, you know, virtual learning is always the right thing to do either. But hey, there are things that we've learned from COVID and that students themselves are telling us um, that, that they found advantageous. Uh, and, you know, to get one little example, I mean, many of our own students have told us, for example, that the fact that certain lessons were happening virtually and were recorded and therefore they were able to stop and rewind and go back to, and again, there's literature to support this, was really advantageous as opposed to, I missed that lesson or actually, I was physically present in that lesson, but for some reason or other, I wasn't engaged. Um, you know, I was thinking about something else happening in my life. And so there are lots of ways in which these technologies can now be wielded, I think. And the question is, and this is for me what's so important that, that we drive across our own group, but with educators more broadly, is that those conversations then are, are had and they're driven and the educators are at the center of those conversations as opposed to, to your point, um, you know, a software developer who may have their own views about how a technology should be used, but but don't necessarily have the same ends uh, or, frankly, expertise um, in mind or, or available to them. So that's, that's one reason why we started this podcast, I think, also to try and support some of those conversations in, in our own small way. James, there's so many different directions I'd, I'd love to take this in. I'm also conscious of, of time ticking away. I just wonder, can I ask you, this is a bit, a bit of a tangent, I suppose, but there's this, this concept of um, a knowledge prosthesis, the idea that, that one role that technology can play is that it takes on, if you like, a sort of an extension of our memory capacities, our human memory capacities, and, and therefore what we do now or what we should do as far as learning design and, and memorization and so on perhaps changes or can change. And then there's a conversation about whether it should or when it should. And just to add a bit of color to that, I mean, if you think about I don't know, a mobile phone, I, I, I'll admit I don't know off by heart most of the phone numbers of the people I communicate every day with now because they're stored in my mobile. I certainly still remember the, the key phone numbers I, I was using as a child before yep. mobile and things like that. So that, that concept then of a knowledge prosthesis, what, what do you make of that? Is, something that? is that something that you see as, as potentially valuable, interesting, problematic? I just wonder if you have any thoughts on that one. Yes, valuable, interesting, and problematic. I think uh, all of those, th <laughs> all of those three things. You know, I, I 
lately we've been doing a lot of work on uh, in two related areas one is um cyber citizenship um and particularly in cyber citizenship thinking about the problems of misinformation disinformation and malinformation and then another semi-related uh project we do a lot with um K12 cybersecurity education and in both of those contexts sort of one of the things that I think about with sort of uh, technology as a knowledge prosthesis is the the vulnerabilities that it introduces in in some important ways. Um, so if you know, I'm I'm not going to memorize basic facts because I, I they're accessible to me at all times. I can look them up whenever I want. It means that um, I what is important is my ability to to critically identify sources of information that I can that I can trust um, and sources of information that haven't been compromised. And, you know, thinking about sort of those, those three areas, misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation, and how I might be vulnerable to those. I was talking to um, a cybersecurity, somebody working in, in a cybersecurity profession recently, and I asked him what kept him up at night. And um, what he said was uh, AI. Uh, in particular, how AI can be weaponized in 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 cyber, and that you know we we haven't seen the the sort of worst case scenario attacks uh, at this point, and the AI as a technology, uh, artificial intelligence as a technology, is still developing, but it's it's very close to where it would need to be to be weaponized um, in some some very serious ways, and it already has been to a large extent, but but you know, we just haven't seen the high impact attacks that are possible. So I think about all of that, like how important it is, like, you know, yes, we probably don't need to spend educational time memorizing basic facts, unless those basic facts are essential to memorize in order to build a conceptual model that you can generalize to other situations. Like it's it's impossible to build a conceptual model of, uh, of how a system works without specific uh, features to feed into that. And so if you're trying to build a conceptual model of, you know, let's say how, how governments work or something like that, you have to know some specific examples of that, um, you know, true, true in any domain. And so, yeah, memorization, sort of rote memorization on a large scale is not necessary, but in, in order to, to create sort of information models uh, and, and effective strategies for, for, for learning, to generate that those effective strategies for learning, it's it's important to to fund that discussion with things that you know in in your own head and don't have to Google first. Yeah, but both hugely important. It seems to me that there's a parallel here with uh, what we were just talking about in terms of this this rapid uh, adoption or familiarity with you know, video conferencing technology, for example. You know, because these things are now here and available, there's a conversation to be had about you know judicious use. You know, when when is it advantageous and and to what end? And I think in some ways there's, there's a parallel here with, you know, the, the kind of rote memorization conversation. Yes, to build appropriate conceptual foundations such that you can, you know, critically evaluate and, and build on top of those when you encounter new knowledge, new ideas, transfer them to other contexts yeah. and so on uh, is it, it, important then. But therein lies the, the decision, you know, what are those foundational building blocks that we should be focusing on uh, and what maybe was there in the past that just doesn't need to be there anymore and perhaps we can then shift to create opportunities to think about i don't know all, all kinds of other important things and there's no shortage of, of those that, that schools are often asked to think about 
Interesting. Cool. Look, I'm again, jumping around a little bit here. But there are a couple of things I'd love to just uh, to, to cover off and get your thoughts on bef- before we wrap this up. And, you know, we, we should have talked about the technology uses and perceptions survey earlier on. And again, something that, that for us, uh, with our group of schools has been hugely valuable. Uh, and the data that we're building year on year, I think is is, you know, richer, of course, with each uh, use of that survey. But, you know, the, the TUPS survey, you know, what is it? Uh, how, as a tool, do you see it complementing the technology integration matrix? The the TUPS is a, a broad survey instrument uh, for teachers uh, that asks teachers about uh, uh, a number of different areas. One is um, one one part of it focuses on their their confidence and comfort in using technology in their teaching. Um, another part asks about the frequency with which they use different grouping strategies or pedagogical strategies in their work. Um, another asks how well supported they feel by, by technology specialists or technology coaches in their teaching environment or how well prepared they feel uh, by, by what, what they came before. Also about their sort of their, their attitudes toward technology, how, how they perceive the role of technology as it relates to teaching and learning. How central is it um, in the teaching and learning uh, process um, and that survey it, it's it, it can be used in many different ways. Um, one way that a lot of schools use it is um, as a pre and post measure uh, to gauge the effectiveness of their professional development programs. So they'll give it at the beginning of uh, a school year um, and they use the data from the beginning of the school year to plan professional development engagements with those teachers over the course of the year um, to to group teachers and get them to what's going to be most effective for them, the things that are that are important, that they've said are important in their uh, professional development journey or, or areas that they, um, that they need more support in. Um, and then at the end of the year, and again, not as a way to judge the teacher, um, but as a way to gauge the effectiveness of a professional development uh, approach. Um, so, you know, at, at no point is it really saying, you know, this is a this is a good teacher or a bad teacher, um, but that you know, uh, pre and post is looking at um, how we can support that teacher as a professional making uh, decisions about technology integration in the classroom. Helps with allocation of resources and, and a lot uh, about planning professional development and supporting teachers in, in professional learning communities. That's certainly what, what we're finding. I think the, the visibility it's giving us on these things and, and the ability over time to see those changes and, and hopefully make judgments then about the impact of, of different uh, approaches, professional learning and so on, uh, I think has been hugely valuable. So um, thank you, actually, for the for the work that you've been doing with us uh, as an organization on that. It's been, it's been very helpful and look forward to, to seeing that grow over time. Uh, and perhaps... Just as a as a last uh, area to to quickly touch on, um, that's obviously a huge topic, so it'll only have to be a, a light touch uh, discussion, I suppose. But you know, with with so many of these things, and you, know, you, you talked about the video conferencing technology as an example, you know, we've seen rapid change in AI as another, you know, the, the growth uh, and, and the, the the accessibility of different AI uh, across teaching and learning, for example, I think is is rapidly accelerating. So when it comes to thinking about how we measure the impact of these kinds of technologies, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And again, that's obviously a huge, a huge question to unpack. And, and it's probably another episode in that, isn't there, just on the impact of technology itself. But, you know, the, the fact is, if we want to do, you know, detailed studies and, and you know, controlled trials and so on, those, those take time. These new technologies are, are 
you know, rapidly being iterated on and developing and, and proliferating and, and perfusing throughout classrooms and uh, education establishments every week. Um, the pandemic has accelerated that more. So, so how do you how do you think about measuring the impact of of these technologies? Um, how do you think we should? What 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 thoughts would you give to to schools and and people like myself working in this space? Well, first of all, I want to say thank you to EIM. You all have been wonderful partners. Like you're you're so interested in you know not just the the I mean you're you're definitely interested in the practical implications and the the outcomes in schools, but you're interested also in the theory behind it. Um, in a way that's that's really wonderful and, and uncommon, I think. Uh, so I, I really appreciate working. It's been great fun. I think the most important thing in thinking about um, measuring the impact of, of technology and teaching and learning is sort of being cautious about context. Um, and the context is is so important. And so, you know, if you look at just what I'm trying to say is that the instruments that we use to measure what's going on in the classroom have limitations in and of themselves. And so, you know, I don't think that, um, I think that really judging the outcomes of a technology integration project should be multifaceted and should involve multiple different kinds of data and different data sources. And I think it's important to engage teachers in those questions. Um, if we look at it from a distance and try and decide what kind of data to gather and how to analyze that data, without teachers, we're, we're missing part of the context. Um, we need teachers to help inform how we're looking at that data and how we're, how we're making sense of it. And I think also that you know, a broad survey instrument is a great way to collect a large amount of data from a large population, but then it's important to combine other methods of data collection uh, to make sense out of the data that you see from those from that large implementation. So for instance, we might, from a large set of data, um, derive a profile of a certain kind of teacher, but really understanding why that teacher is making the decisions that they're making or why they answer in a certain way might need further study. So, you know, we look for, um, you know, okay, we come up with a profile of a certain kind of teacher um, that has a certain outlook or a certain approach, and then we go talk to people who meet that criteria. Um, so combining things like broad-based survey instruments with classroom observations, with interviews, with focus groups, um, and with talking to people at different levels, um, talking about school leaders or uh, technology support staff, in addition to talking to teachers, really helps paint a full picture of the context. Not understanding the context means that you might um, mistake, it's easy to mistake signal for noise. Um, or, or noise for signal. And so, you know, you, you try a technology, you look at test scores, um, and you think based on the test scores, this is what we need to change or do differently about the technology. And I would caution that against that as sort of too narrow of an approach. Um, you know, and I know that, that, you know, this is, I'm not cautioning you in particular, because I think that EIM has a very uh, sort of global approach to these kinds of questions and a nuanced approach. But I think it's important to understand that uh, that context. I couldn't agree more as well. I, I think uh, these are these are complex, changing things to try to measure and, and get a grasp of. And it's very easy to, to jump to quick conclusions, either positive or negative ones. I think that multifaceted approach is, is the key one for us, just thinking about collecting multiple different types of data different stakeholders to really sort of 
in an informal sense, triangulate on, on what we're gaining here. And, and I think it depends on obviously what, what the outcomes we're looking for are as well and being clear on, on those two. And test scores might be one of those things, but actually there are, there are a great many other things that, that we'd be interested in. There are leading and lagging indicators of change. Um, and so in looking at a broad-based survey instrument like the, the TUPS, um, those lagging indicators might be the actual changes in classroom practice. And the leading indicators might be the attitudes that underlie those. Um, so if you are focused on, let's say that you're focused on um, helping teachers make more student-centered choices with technology integration, um, you might see those changes, you know, it, a consistent professional development effort, you might see those changes show up first in the attitudes section of the survey and not yet in actual classroom practice. And it's important to, to understand the, the leading and lagging indicators because you might, you know, oh, well, we've been at this for a year and we're not seeing any outcomes, so we're going to change course. Well, no, you were on the right course, but you weren't there yet. You know, you were you were on your way to the, the outcomes that you're looking for, but need to stay the course. And you can see the leading indicators are pointing toward change in the attitudes of the teachers that will lead to change in classroom, classroom practice. Um, so I think that's another thing that's important to think about in judging uh, the success of a, of a technology initiative. It takes time to change. Really important point that the sort of time horizon over which you, you think about in, embarking on these kinds of projects and challenges, and, and then how you communicate those things uh, and the time that it will take to different stakeholders that, that are obviously part of that change as well, I think is is crucial. Well, look, James, thank you so much. We've we've just about uh, closed in on, on an hour and I know it's late for you in particular uh, over there. So uh, I just want to say thank you for your time. Thank you for the insights you shared with us. Uh, as I've said earlier in the in the podcast, we've, we've really enjoyed uh, working with yourself and, and, and colleagues uh, on the Tim and, and Tup's um, tools, I suppose, seeing considerable change already in our own organization, utilizing those. So thank you for the support on that one. I'd recommend to, to anyone else that's not familiar with those to to, to have a look at them and, and, and dive into that work. And, and actually, perhaps on that point, how, James, can people that have listened to the podcast and are interested in, in following up and understanding more, where, where should they go? How do they do that? The best place is our website, fcit.usf.edu slash uh, matrix and fcit.usf.edu you can find out about all things that we're doing and all the different projects that we're working on but uh, slash matrix takes you specifically to the matrix um, we have a lot of uh, wonderful resources that our team has created um, uh, just to shout out in particular roy winkleman who was the director of fcit when i first encountered fcit um, who was the the uh, vision behind so much of that uh, interesting work that was going on across the state uh, in the early 2000s uh, and you know on through the 2000s um, has written a lot of the articles that we have on the site that are about specific implementation of the Tim. So the Tim website um, uh, I can be reached through the Tim website. That's probably the easiest place. Uh, you can find our Twitter and Facebook and all of those things there. Great. And we'll link to those in the show notes as well. So uh, people can easily jump through. Well, Dr. James Welsh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, and I wish you uh, a great rest of the day, although there's not all that much of it left for you. <laughs> thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been wonderful. So that was Dr. James Welsh. Thank you, James, for joining us on the EIM Global Podcast and helping us unpack some of the key things we need to be thinking about when designing technology-enabled learning for our students. Don't forget, 
You can follow up with James via the FCIT website, a rich resource full of great tools and articles I recommend. We've linked to the FCIT site in the show notes. Until our next episode, thank you for listening, and don't forget to follow or subscribe so you can stay in touch. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.